Hey everybody, it is Daryl Cooper. You are listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. Some of you heard this episode before. Um, I decided to re-record it to correct the audio issues that I had the first time around. Some people said I should have just let it ride, but I don't know. If you guys are going to give me your time, I need to have more respect for you than that. So I do apologize for the quality the first time around, and um, I added a fair amount of new material that I thought of since I released the first version. Now, as you all know, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, at the time of that I'm releasing this, uh, I guess it's now the 16th of March, 2022. The war is ongoing and shows no signs of abating. The, the Russian assault seems to be increasing in ferocity as the Ukrainians put up a solid defense in many areas of the country. Um, this is obviously the fog of war. It's hard to tell what's going on, but, 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 but things don't look great. Several cities have been captured by the Russians. The city of Kharkov is under attack in the east. Mariupol in the south is surrounded and cut off. And a large force of Ukrainian soldiers seems to be mostly encircled in the east of the country. The capital city of Kiev is nearly surrounded as well. And it's being bombarded, the outer suburbs right now. And, and nobody seems to be quite sure what the Russians intend for it. But I guess we'll find out soon enough. Russian artillery and rockets and missiles and jets are hitting targets all over the country every day. All the way over to the Polish border, they're hitting targets. Western governments have responded with unprecedented sanctions, the effects of which are likely to be grave for Russia and unpredictable for the rest of the world. We've got important leaders in the United States and Europe calling for a no-fly zone to be set up over Ukraine, which would involve putting American pilots in direct combat with Russian pilots and air defenses and would require not only destroying Russian air defenses that are in Ukraine, but Russian air defense batteries that are in Belarus and Russia as well. Now, many of you asked me to share my thoughts on this crisis, and that's what this episode is. Um, it is different from most other episodes that I release on the main Martyr Made feed. It's not uh, one of my really long, in-depth, all-sides-of-the-issue uh, type of episodes. I put it together pretty quickly. I wanted to get it out to you. And so I draw on the work of other people uh, when I can, when they echo my own thinking. Um, and And I don't pretend that this is the final word on anything contained in this podcast. There's a lot more to say. I want to thank everybody for your patience the last few weeks. Um, I know I've been a little bit out of commission. I took a short vacation, just great timing there. Um, and I've just been slammed since I got back. We threw in, we flew in three guys for a Jocko podcast episode I put together. And I flew in another guy, Scott Horton. Some of you may have heard that episode for an unraveling. And um, now I'm preparing for an interview with... Tucker Carlson, full hour interview on his show, Tucker Carlson today at the end of this month. And that's pretty scary. So I'm a little focused on that right now. Anyway, this episode is the kind of thing that I would normally release on the Substack to subscribers only. So if you can spare $5 a month to help feed your favorite podcasters, favorite podcaster, uh, please do consider subscribing at martyrmade.substack.com. 
GenPop.com. But for this episode, uh, I promised you guys I would put it out for GenPop, and so here you go. These are my thoughts on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. apart for this small question of religion. Well, as I said in the intro, I did pick the wrong week to go on vacation up in the mountains. This isn't what I planned on talking about uh, this week. I had something else queued up. In fact, I've got a lot of other things that I that I'd like to be talking about, but like many of you, I have not really been able to think about really anything except for what's going on in Ukraine. And to be honest, it's been a little bit paralyzing. I just look around and I don't like anything that I am seeing. I have a very, very bad feeling about everything I am seeing from just about everybody. And that includes Putin, of course. But I don't like what I'm seeing from Western leaders American and European. I don't like what I'm seeing from the media. And I don't like what I'm seeing from the American and European publics in general. I see people panicking. I see a lot of building just vitriolic, irrational hatred and impulsiveness and vindictiveness and and a groupthink on this issue that is policed more aggressively than anything I saw in the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq War, which was pretty bad. These headlines are from just the last week, week and a half. The Canadian Hockey League bans Russian 16- and 17-year-olds from draft. German clinic refuses to treat Russian patients. Russian piano prodigy's performance is cancelled, despite denouncing invasion. Daniil Medvedev, the world's number one tennis player, could face a ban from Wimbledon unless he provides public assurances that he is not a supporter of President Putin. This isn't a guy who's been out there taking pictures, you know, with Putin and and kissing his feet. You know, they're just going to him and say, you better give us these assurances or else. Italy's main university in, in Milan banned teaching Dostoevsky. They walked that one back, but other places are banning Tchaikovsky and, and Tolstoy. I mean, come on. You know, every time in history that this has ever happened before, we wake up a little while later and realize that whew, we lost our minds for a little while there and that the people doing it were, in fact, the bad guys. Every time. And this time will be no different And a lot of the people who are cheering this stuff on right now are going to be denying ever supporting it for long. Headline from The Hill. Facebook, Instagram, to allow calls for violence against Russians temporarily. From Reuters. 
Facebook owner Meta is also temporarily allowing some posts that call for death to Russian President Putin or Belarusian President Lukashenko, according to internal emails to its content moderators. From The Intercept, Facebook lifts ban on Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov battalion. See, until the other day, Facebook didn't allow support of the Azov battalion, just like they don't allow posts in support of the KKK, but now they're killing people that we've decided we hate, along with the Jews and other groups that were already on their shit list, so apparently it's all good. I read that Western governments are just seizing the property of Russians abroad. No accusations of any wrongdoing, no semblance of due process. You know, they're judged to have ties to the Putin regime as if any ultra-wealthy person with global operations is not tied in one way or another to their government. Most countries around the world vehemently opposed our invasion of Iraq, but, you know, you didn't see France seizing the property of American private citizens over it. You've got do-nothing senators like Mitt Romney, that vulture capitalist who took four deferments to avoid the Vietnam War, calling U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Tulsi Gabbard, who served multiple tours in Iraq, a traitor. You've got people on mainstream television, mainstream daytime television, saying that Tucker Carlson and Tulsi Gabbard need to be investigated and possibly jailed. And so things are just just going great over here, guys. Just going great in our, our rational and tolerant liberal democracies where we don't do things like ascribe collective guilt to whole populations. As I said, I've already recorded this once and some people told me not to do it again because I would lose some of the emotion that I had in the first one and I can already tell you that's not going to be an issue. I was a little worried about that, but my blood's warming up just reading those headlines. Now those of you who follow me on Twitter know that I have something of a contrarian take on this whole situation to say the least. For starters, I don't like war. And that might have been different at a different period in my life, but I'm, I'm past that part of my life. I don't like war. I especially don't like wars between cousins, and I really don't like wars that could have been easily avoided. Now, right here at the beginning, let's just get a few things out of the way, okay? Vladimir Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine, and the responsibility for this war falls on him. Okay, I'm going to say that as clearly as I can say it. But as Scott Horton recently put it, while Putin's responsible for this current round of violence in Ukraine, a good deal of the responsibility for this new Cold War in which the current fighting has its context falls on us, on the United States. And in this episode, I'm going to try to explain why it is that I feel that way. The first time around, the first time I recorded this, some people objected that I wasn't presenting a full picture here, and those people are correct. What I try to do in this episode is to provide the other side of the story that you're already getting on every TV channel, in every newspaper, in every magazine, and from every politician. The information here is not supposed to be taken as a replacement for what you're seeing on the news. It's supposed to be a supplement. Something I said at the And the first time around, I want to say up front this time, this episode is not really even about Russia or Ukraine. It's about the United States, my country, 
and whether we ought to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and say with a straight face that at least we did everything on our end to avoid this horrible situation, all this death and destruction, not to mention the threat of escalation to great power war, or whether we have done just about everything in our power to egg it on and make it worse. There was a time not very long ago when you would hear our leaders talk about something called strategic empathy. That doesn't mean agreeing with the other side's position. It means understanding it so that when we go out and make decisions, we're actually dealing in reality. The great Cold War diplomat George Kennan wrote his famous long telegram in 1946 in which he laid out the containment policy that ended up defining our Cold War strategy. But a year later, when he was the first director of the Office of Policy Planning, just before he became the ambassador to the Soviet Union, he wrote it up as an anonymous article for Foreign Affairs magazine, and he titled it, The Sources of Soviet Conduct. The Sources of Soviet Conduct. And Kennan, who who knew the Soviet Union as well or better than anyone in the upper echelons of U.S. policy circles at the time, spent much of the article trying to correct the almost complete ignorance of American policymakers regarding the motivations of the Soviet communists. To explain to people how they saw the world and the geopolitical situation, what their priorities and their goals were. And when he did that, he wasn't called a Stalin apologist or a Soviet sympathizer. And if you called George Kennan a traitor, he probably would have laid you out. Well, since the rise of the third-generation neoconservatives in the 1990s, strategic empathy is, is out the window. You know, not only has it been thrown out the window, but anybody who tries to reintroduce it or any kind of nuance into situations like this are attacked as Saddam apologists or Assadists or Putin apologists or Gaddafi lovers or Bin Laden apologists, whoever the Hitler of the moment is. Because that's how neocons see the world. Every enemy is Hitler. Anyone who tries to understand the adversary's perspective is a Nazi sympathizer. And leaders have a binary choice. You can either be a weak appeaser like Chamberlain or a brave stalwart like Churchill. Those are your two options. It's this Manichaean, cartoonish, and above all cynical way of looking at the world, but it's a very effective way of getting what you want, which is why the neocons who are relatively small in number, have gotten their way on most foreign policy questions over the last 30 years. They did the same thing before the second Iraq war. And just as we were launching ourselves into that disaster, David Frum, one of the nastiest parasites attached to the American body politic, wrote an article for National Review called Unpatriotic Conservatives, in which he denounced and effectively excommunicated any conservative thinker who tried to keep us out of that catastrophe. David Frum wasn't even an American. He didn't get his dual citizenship until 2007. And yet he was able to drive good men, good patriotic men like Pat Buchanan and Justin Raimondo, Thomas Fleming, guys with more patriotism, not to mention intelligence in their their little finger than Frum has in his entire family line. He was able to drive them out of polite company. And of course, it turned out that they were right and he was wrong. And the war that he was being paid to help lie us into was a disaster. But guess what? 
those guys are still banned from polite company. And David Frum has spent the last 20 years getting paid to accuse people of being Gaddafi lovers for not wanting to destroy Libya or Assadists for not wanting to destroy Syria. And now Putin apologists for wanting to de-escalate this situation with Russia. These people don't even bother arguing their points. They just accuse and insult their opponents, threaten them, and let everybody else know that that's what they're going to get if they speak up. And they do it because it works. It worked in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. It worked during the Red Scares of the 20th century. It worked to get us into Iraq, and it's working pretty well right now. And today, dissenters have more avenues to express themselves thanks to the advent of the internet, but these people are doing everything that they can to censor people and regain their monopoly over the narrative. Well, screw David Frum and the caribou he wrote in on. So far, Substack has stood tall in their commitment to free speech, and so I'm going to say my piece. Now, you ready? Are you sitting down in your safe space? Take a breath. Here goes. Putin is not Hitler, actually. However, Hitler is a decent place to start this discussion because uh, I think it's really hard to avoid a lot of comparisons between what has happened between Russia and the West since the end of the Cold War and what happened between Germany and the countries that won the First World War in the 1920s and 1930s. Let's start with Germany. It's 1918. The war is turning against the Germans but the fight is far from over. The Germans had the capacity to potentially fight on for quite a while. Some people think years. Of course, that would have bled the Germans white, but it would have bled the other side too. And they had already seen the stress of war cause Russia to collapse, take them out of the war. And the French army came so close to mutiny in 1917 that their generals told the British that they were done going on the offensive for the foreseeable future. So the Germans could have kept things going in the hope that maybe the other side would break first. You know, the Russians are out of the war. France might not be able to take another Verdun or two. It would have cost both sides millions more lives. Instead, the Germans agreed to an armistice, believing Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric about peace without victory and so forth, the 14 points. And part of the reason they stood down was that they expected and were given every reason to expect that they would be able to negotiate a just peace in good faith, something that would not be on the table if they made the Allies fight their way all the way to Berlin, as they did the second time around. And so the Germans begin to demobilize. But instead of standing down, the British Navy keeps in place its starvation blockade of German ports. Most estimates are that between 600 and 800,000 Germans died of starvation and diseases related to malnutrition, including some 80,000 children. I mean, that's million. If you were to just proportion it to the population of the United States today, that would be like losing three or four million people. You know, it's about three times as many people starving to death proportionally has died from COVID-19 in the United States. It's a greater percentage of the population than we lost to the Spanish flu pandemic. The Germans laid down their arms thinking they were going to be going into treaty negotiations as junior partners. Junior, you know, for sure, but partners, 
but instead they were treated as if they had made the Allies fight tooth and nail all the way to Berlin, and then finally submitted to an unconditional surrender. The British kept the blockade in place until the Versailles Treaty was secured in 1919. It's like eight months after the war was over, essentially threatening Germany with more starved children if they didn't accept the terms that were being imposed. Winston Churchill told Parliament, quote, We are holding all our means of coercion in full operation or in immediate readiness for use. We are enforcing the blockade with vigor. We have strong armies ready to advance at the shortest notice. Germany is very near starvation. The evidence I have received from the officers sent by the war office all over Germany shows, first of all, the great privations which the German people are suffering, and secondly, the great danger of a collapse of the entire structure of German social and national life under the pressure of hunger and malnutrition. Now is therefore the moment to settle. End quote. So again, the blockade was kept in place for eight months after the war was over. Never mind the fact that there had been a revolution that overthrew the Kaiser. So the government that the Allies had been fighting this whole time was out of the picture. And the Kaiser moved to the ne Netherlands, lived out his days comfortably, hunting and, and going out on archaeological digs. The punitive Versailles Treaty didn't target the Kaiser, didn't target his government. It targeted the German people themselves. The people who had been conscripted into the emperor's army, same as the British and French and Russian soldiers. Many, many, many of the most experienced strategic thinkers at the time, economic thinkers too, denounced the Versailles Treaty. The U.S. Senate refused to ratify it, saying it was guaranteeing another war sometime in the future with a bitter and resentful Germany. But those people were denounced as weak-kneed, hun-loving, borderline traitors, and the people who wanted to keep Germany's face in the mud got their way. Well, of course, the 1920s turned into a complete disaster for Germany. And while the rest of the Western world was celebrating their victory and the roaring economy of that decade, the German economy and its civil society just collapsed completely when they hyperinflated their currency to try to keep up with the reparations that were being imposed by the Allies. And hyperinflation is one of the worst things that can ever happen to a society. There's a good book about the Weimar hyperinflation called, uh, what is it, When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson. You can check that out if you want an idea of the damage that it does. You've probably seen pictures from the Weimar hyperinflation where people are going to buy bread with literal wheelbarrows full of cash or else they're using cash as toilet paper because it was cheaper than buying actual toilet paper or anything else. That's how worthless the Deutsche Mark had become as a result, as a direct result of conditions imposed by a treaty that pretty much every German, and I mean right, left, center, communist, capitalist, nationalist, every German felt was forced on them under the gun after they had been tricked into laying down their arms. One of the purposes of the treaty was to ensure that Germany no longer had the ability to wage war, and so in addition to preventing them from having a military, at a time when the Soviet Union was tooling up just to the east, the Allies stripped Germany of a lot of its territory to create new countries that were hostile to or afraid of Germany, like Poland and Czechoslovakia. These territories cut 10% of Germany's ethnic German population out of Germany, 
making them citizens all of a sudden of new countries with a stroke of a pen. Every German suddenly had a cousin or a friend or a friend of a friend who was now a foreigner, and pretty much every German on both sides of these new borders experienced this as an extreme injustice. The Weimar government pretty much forfeited all credibility before it ever even got started because it happened to be the government when these terms were forced on Germany. By the time you get to 1933, when the Nazis take power, people were ready to accept pretty much anything other than the Weimar government. And as a result, this terrible situation developed from which you can draw a direct line to the Second World War. You had this new Weimar German state, but all around it, right on the other side of the border, were millions of these ethnic Germans who constituted a supermajority in these regions of their new countries. Well, Germany would have liked to have those people back. Most of those people wanted to be back in Germany. And so naturally, uh, the majority populations in those countries, the Poles, the Czechoslovaks, etc., I mean, these are people who had been subjects of the Kaiserreich until yesterday. They were very jealous of their independence for good reason. But they looked askance at their new ethnic German populations as potential fifth columnists. And of course, a situation like that tends to become self-fulfilling. You know, the, the majority population doesn't trust the ethnic Germans. The ethnic Germans sense that and become more alienated from the broader society and say, see, this just proves that we're not real citizens of Poland and that we belong in Germany. And so what's Poland supposed to do with a population who would probably break away if they could? You start seeing official and unofficial discrimination against Germans manifesting in various ways. Once that starts happening, it alienates the Germans even more. It makes the Germans in Germany even more determined to bring their exiled brethren back into the fold. You know, if only to get them out from under a society and a government that's, that's perceived as hostile to them. And then hostility was often exaggerated, but I get that's natural too. You know, things start to happen. People are going to tell stories. Rumors are going to start. And so the exaggeration's natural. And in any way, it was partly true. Germans celebrated when Hitler brought the Sudetenland Germans and the Austrians back into the Reich. And German papers were full of lurid stories about Polish persecution of Polish Germans for months before Hitler used it as a casus belli to invade. Get back to the hyperinflation of 1923. I mean, when I say it laid waste to Germany, it's... People lost everything. You know, try to imagine that you're you know, 60, 65 years old, been working your whole life, you saved your pennies for retirement, and you know, I'll just put it in American currency terms to make it more familiar. You've got $500,000 put away in a 401k and a pension of, say, $1,000 a month squirreled away. So you're not rich, but you're going to make it. You're going to keep a roof over your head until, you know, until the final day. This is the fruit of your life's labor. You've got what you need to survive until the lights go out. And then, practically overnight, I mean, really, a loaf of bread costs $10 billion. What's your little $500,000 nest egg and $1,000 pension worth now? I mean, literally nothing. And this happened to virtually the entire German middle class. They were completely wiped out. Right on the heels of a war that killed about one in six military-aged German men. 
And people who had watched their children starve just a few years back now watch their elderly parents lose their savings and get put out on the street because they had to sell the house for a pittance along with any other hard assets and personal belongings that they had just to feed themselves. Now you might ask, if the money had no value, what were people buying your parents' house and your mother's jewelry with? Well, the people they were forced to sell to were those who had access to outside capital. You know, dollars or British pounds, whatever. So if you had a relative in the United States and could get them to send you a hundred bucks, you were suddenly a king in a land with no other money. And people did do that on the individual level, but it wasn't just people. It was institutional. Western banks were hiring local agents to go out all over Germany to buy up real estate and businesses and you know anything, jewelry, furniture, art, anything that held value from these desperate people who needed something to eat just to get through the next month. Now make no, no mistake about it, most middle-class German Jews got their faces ripped off by the hyperinflation, as much as any ethnic German. But the unfortunate fact is that a lot of the people who were buying this stuff up at pennies on the dollar happened to be Jewish, just for the simple reason that Jews have a lot of relatives in other countries. There were people spread out all over the world, so they were able to draw on connections abroad to access foreign currency when nobody else was able to. And so while the German middle class, again, including most of the German Jewish middle class, was completely destroyed, some people were getting obscenely rich by buying up the German economy for next to nothing, and of course this led to a tremendous amount of resentment. The 1935 anti-Jewish Nuremberg laws passed by the Nazi regime included things like not allowing German women to work as servants in Jewish households. Now, people usually think of this as just reflecting the Nazis' paranoia about you know, Jewish sexual proclivities in the Nazis' you know, way of looking at things. But while that might have been part of the motivation, the real drive behind it was the fact that there were a lot of German women working as servants for wealthy Jews, many of whom were perceived to have made their money by joining with foreign financial institutions to loot the German economy. Now, of course, that does not excuse the Nazis' anti-Semitism. That's not what this is about. It's just to say that the actions taken by the Allies in the aftermath of the war helped to create the conditions in which many average Germans would listen to what the Nazis had to say. Of course, you have to be careful with historical analogies, but sometimes you really can learn something about the present and the future by looking at the past. And I think that the similarities to what happened with Russia after the Cold War ended in 91 are, are too obvious to ignore. And start with how the Cold War ended. Ronald Reagan begins negotiating an end to the Cold War with Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev in 1988. Gorbachev begins opening the USSR up not only to the outside world, but also opening things up within its own borders, starting to allow things that were forbidden before, things like that. The first part of David Remnick's really great book, Lenin's Tomb, is all about those very early days of Glasnost when, you know, the Russians, the Russian people were not really sure what to make of it. Many of them thought it was like a trick or something, you know, and that once the people who dared 
to go out and start saying things that would have gotten them in trouble before. Then the curtain would come down and the authorities would round them all up. Well, it turned out not to be a trick. And it became apparent very quickly that Glasnost had unleashed a sleeping beast and that it was opening up enough room for nationalists and other dissidents that there was a real chance it was going to lead to the dissolution of the Soviet Union altogether. Now, Gorbachev could have called in the tanks. He could have called in airstrikes. He thought about it at first. In the very early stages, he took some steps to nip it in the bud, but he didn't escalate as the dissolution accelerated. If he had, it might not have worked to save the USSR in the end, but there were still people willing to kill and die for the Soviet Union, for their country as they saw it. And it could have gotten very ugly and very dangerous. But in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, he didn't call in the tanks, and the USSR acquiesced to a massive, massive concession. Especially when you consider the history of how the whole Warsaw Pact-NATO world order came into existence. Mikhail Gorbachev agreed not to resist the reunification of Germany and to go along with its entry into NATO. Just a massive concession. And then what did we do? Well, we followed the path laid down by the Allies' treatment of Germany after the First World War pretty much to a T, taking advantage of the opportunity to put our foot on Russia's neck geopolitically and to engage in probably the single biggest looting operation since the Protestant Reformation. And I suggest everybody read up a little on what happened to Russia in the 1990s. It is shocking. And more than that, it's a disgraceful episode in America's foreign relations. And some of you have asked for a reading list on this, so I'll, I'll put one together and post it on the Substack. As far as the economy, what happened in Russia in the 1990s had many similarities to what happened in Germany the first time around. Not identical, but many similarities. Western banks descended like vultures on the corpse of the USSR, sending in agents to go make contacts in Russia to make sure that they got a piece of this gigantic economy as it was transitioning from communism to capitalism. I mean, just imagine, you're talking about a huge, developed, industrialized country with assets worth trillions, in, in at least today's dollars, that were about to be up for grabs. Under the Soviet system, you know, there was a command economy. The state owned all the important industries. And now they needed to transition away from that to a system where all of it would be owned by private individuals and operated as profit-making enterprises, just like they do here. Well, the Russians asked some prominent Western economists who had already helped Poland through a similar transition with some success to now come over to Russia and show them how to do it. And one of the main guys that they called in was the Harvard economist Jeffrey Sachs. I think he might have been at Columbia at the time. I should have looked that up. Uh, you know, Sachs has been demonized by critics of shock therapy, as this process of privatization is called, but I think mostly unfairly. And Sachs and others had already run the same playbook in Poland, privatized the economy while loans and other aid from the IMF helped smooth out the bumps in the road. And he went to Russia with the intention to do the same thing. Now, just think about what a historic opportunity this was. You listen to Jeffrey Sachs talk about this, and you can tell he's just 
just foaming at the mouth, angry about it. Just think about what a historic opportunity this was. 50 years of nuclear close calls and proxy warfare with the Soviet Union. And we had this opportunity, the West, specifically the United States, to be gracious in victory and to show some respect to the Russian people who had just overthrown communism and were asking for our help. Instead, we did the exact opposite. We did the exact opposite. And Jeffrey Sachs has complained about this ever since, that once he got over there and started the privatization process going, and again, it's, it's usually known as shock therapy. It gives you an idea of how disruptive and traumatic the process is and why any country that's trying it needs some support if it's going to work, if it has any chance of working. And so Sachs calls back to Washington, D.C. and says, all right, we're ready. You know the drill. It worked in Poland. It'll work here. We just need the IMF to run the same playbook, and we'll have Russia back on its feet in no time. But when he was in Poland, people were like, yeah, totally, let's do it. When he was in Russia, he calls back, and he's not getting the same response. He just got resistance and refusal. And he says that he couldn't understand why Washington was suddenly acting like this. He was dealing with the same people he had dealt with when he was in Poland. They knew how the process was supposed to work. They knew that it was working in Poland. But he says that over time, as he had more and more of these conversations and as other people kind of came to him on the down low and let him know what was really going on, he began to understand that back in Washington, D.C., they did not want Russia back on its feet. They wanted Russia to stay face down in the dirt so that we could pick her pockets and dance on her grave. Sachs resigned in disgust in 2004. The 2004 Russia is just the beginning of its problems. See, the way they decided to privatize the economy was very crude. What they do is create paper vouchers. I mean, just think about it. You have everything and all the big industries are owned by the government. Now you have to figure out, well, who gets what, right? So what they did is create paper vouchers and give one to each Russian citizen. And each voucher represented your share of the Russian formerly state industries. And you can do with it whatever you want. The people had no idea what to do with them. You know, they had no food. These people couldn't buy medicine or meet any of their basic needs. And it's not like these vouchers pay dividends or something. So for most people, their value at the time was entirely abstract. And just imagine you're in that desperate situation. No food on your kid's table, and they come around and give you a piece of paper that says one share of Russian industry or whatever. <laughs> what can you do with it except sell it to somebody who has some money? And who has money in a post-communist economy except for gangsters running the black market and ex-KGB and military officers who have been selling off the Russian armory to the black market and people who have connections with the West. And so Western financial institutions did pretty much the same thing they did in Germany. They sent agents to go hook up with some unscrupulous locals and offered them U.S. dollars and British pounds to go buy up everybody's vouchers for practically nothing from you know these desperate people who were literally on the brink of starvation. When you hear about the Russian oligarchs, this is how they got to be oligarchs. By 1997, seven men owned 58% of the entire Russian economy. And we're talking about gangsters. Killers. You might remember after Putin took over, he put the oligarch 
Mikhail Khodorkovsky on trial, the guy who ran Yukos Oil. They had him in a cage in the courtroom. It was uh, it was quite a picture. Well, the Western press made out like Khodorkovsky was just some political dissident, a victim of political persecution. If that guy had been an American and done what he had done over there, over here, he would have been lucky to avoid death row. Now, these gangsters were taking advantage to buy up the Russian economy and shipping the money that they made out of the country into foreign accounts as fast as Western banks could launder it for them. Meanwhile, Russian civil society and public health completely collapsed. I mean completely collapsed. Think about this. In the United States, in recent years, we've had a lot of problems with deaths of despair, you know, drug overdoses, things like that. Unprecedented spikes in mortality from these things, as well as from COVID-19. Drug overdose deaths are up 137% in the United States since 2000. With all of those factors combined, all of these things that have been hitting us at once, average life expectancy for the worst impacted demographics in the United States has dropped by about a year and a half. Average life expectancy. The life expectancy of Russian men dropped from the high 60s in 1990 to the low to mid 50s by the middle of the decade. And it's even worse than that sounds because when you actually get into the numbers, Life expectancy for women was basically unchanged. Life expectancy for young children and senior citizens was basically unchanged. Virtually the entire drop, this massive drop in life expectancy, was concentrated among Russian men. Just due to a massive spike in early deaths. Deaths almost entirely due to suicide and violence and drug and alcohol poisoning. Do you have any idea... How many murders, suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol poisonings a country has to have for its life expectancy to drop 15 years? I mean, it was just a catastrophe. Life expectancy in countries that were hardest hit by the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic never dropped that much. It was just a total, full-spectrum disaster. And again, it's happening at the same time that Western financial institutions are picking the bones of the Russian economy clean with the help of local gangsters. Nobody to this day really knows how much was looted, but at least hundreds of billions of dollars were siphoned out of the Russian economy into foreign bank accounts as regular Russian people were, were literally starving to death and dying from lack of basic necessities. In 1996, when the Russians tried to elect someone other than Boris Yeltsin the drunk puppet of the oligarchs who had an approval rating of something less than 10%, we sent an army of consultants and others to go over and finance and run his campaign for him, make sure he got reelected because he was our guy. And the oligarchs who owned Russia's television and radio stations and newspapers did their part to make sure that he won. Here's part of an article written by uh, Mark Weisbrot. He's the director of this. He was the director of the Center for Economic Policy Research. He wrote this in 1999. Quote, what were they thinking when executives at the Bank of New York saw billions of dollars floating in from the home computer of a Russian businessman with ties to organized crime there? Did they really believe that these were just ordinary profits? The biggest money laundering scandal in history has prompted calls for a fresh look at the role of American and IMF funds in Russia. To say this is long overdue would be an understatement. 
The corruption is certainly mind-numbing in scale and scope, with some of the West's favorite reformers, including Konstantin Kogolovsky, the former Russian representative at the IMF, at the center of the investigation. But the tribute that the Russian mafia skims off the top is just one part of the looting of Russia. The other part has been scripted by Washington and its most powerful financial institution, the International Monetary Fund. It is a different form of pillage, to be sure. The robber barons who have taken over the Russian economy since the fall of the Soviet Union have adopted the practice of the Medici family of 15th century Florence. Money to get power, power to protect the money. Washington's money mandarins, on the other hand, descended upon Russia with enormous wealth and power already in their possession. They have used both to colonize Russia, turning a once-developed economy into a third-world country. The results have been devastating. Over the last eight years, the, the economy has shrunk by more than half. Russian men can now expect to die in their 50s. The chief economist at the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, has noted that the number of Russians living in poverty has climbed from 2 million to 60 million in just a few years. Stiglitz, who is one of America's most accomplished and respected economists, has recently argued that these results, quote, are not just due to sound policies being poorly implemented, end quote. It has been one debacle after another since the IMF introduced its shock therapy program in 1992. Like a battered spouse who sees no alternative but to return to her abuser, Russia comes back to the IMF for more credits. But the hundreds of billions that have fled the country in the 1990s have canceled out this aid as well as the meager foreign direct investment many times over. At the same time, Russia has accumulated more than $150 billion in foreign debt, with the burden of debt service now reaching a crushing 29% of total export earnings. At some point, any rational, non-corrupt political leader in Russia has to question whether the country's friendly relations with Washington are worth the price of continued impoverishment. That time may be approaching, as Russia elects first a parliament and then a president over the next 10 months. There will be calls from across the political spectrum to break, or at least loosen, the chains that bind Russia to its Western tormentors. The American press will dismiss these demands as nationalist finger-pointing and attribute Russia's demise to its failure to hew more closely to the IMF's prescriptions. And Washington will pour money into the Russian elections, as it did in 1996, to support its friends. But the Russians might well be better off cutting this toxic umbilical cord, which could at least give them a fighting chance against the powerful domestic criminal class that our own government and private sectors have helped to create, end quote. Now, that article was written in 1999, about three months before Vladimir Putin pushed Boris Yeltsin out of office and took the helm of the Russian state. And at first, the West was cautiously optimistic about Putin. And he looked like a guy from within the system. And they expected him to keep the grift going as long as he got his cut. But very quickly it became apparent but that that was not going to happen. And Putin told the oligarchs, you know, you guys can stay rich, y'all can keep your businesses, but you're done running the Russian government like it's your own personal property. 
And those of you who are good with that, awesome. You're my friends. We, we, we can be buddies and you get to stay billionaires. Those of you who are not okay with that and refuse to get to the pro, get with the program, you're going to find out that the Russian state is back and it will be asserting its prerogatives again. Well, many of the oligarchs, mostly ethnic Russians, accepted the deal. And those are the oligarchs that are still in Russia today, now getting their yachts seized in European ports. Many others didn't. And they took their hundreds of billions of dollars and fled to New York and London and Tel Aviv, where they have spent their money ever since lobbying our governments to maintain our belligerent stance toward Russia as long as Putin's in command. Now let's circle back to the beginning. The Cold War is ending. The Soviet government is trying to decide whether to step off and let its you know, various parts break away or to do whatever it takes to preserve their country. And in 1989, they agreed not to resist the reunification of Germany and uh, its integration into NATO. And so I take you back to that moment, and I want you to just imagine the discussions that must have taken place in the Soviet government over this. I'm talking about over the reunification of Germany and its entry into NATO. Just imagine the behind-the-scenes discussions. Germany, okay, the country that had brought the apocalypse to the Soviet Union. Within living memory, you know, there were guys in the Soviet government who had fought the Nazis in World War II. Germany was not only coming back together, but it would be joining what had always been an explicitly anti-Russian military alliance. You know, today we see Germany and we're like, ah, the Germans. And we might think any concern over them going back to militarism is a silly concern. But that wasn't how it was at the time. You know, the, the big reason we we insisted on putting them in NATO is so that we could keep control of them in case they got, case they got wild again. You know, there was, there was real concern over that. Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of the UK at the time, she was completely against German reunification, tried to stop it to the point that we essentially just went behind the UK's back and got the rest of NATO on board and then just dropped it on our desk and said, eh, sorry. And so if Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, was that worried about the danger of German reunification, you can imagine how the Russians had reason to feel about it. And especially, again, since it would be joining an explicitly anti-Russian military alliance. But they went along with it. They didn't resist it. They had a ton of troops, a ton of military hardware in Germany. That's where the bulk of their forces were. They could have put up a fight, but they didn't. Well, primary reason for that is that the United States and other NATO countries promised them that if the Russians did not resist with Germany, that that would be it. That's as far as NATO would move to the east. And for years, there was dispute over the precise wording or... You know, whether it was actually promised or maybe just implied and the Russians took it that way. But today we know that not only the Russians, but our NATO allies understood it as a guarantee. Scott Horton recently gave a fantastic speech uh, going through the history of this post-Cold War Cold War in which we have been engaged. And he said this, quote, President Ronald Reagan had negotiated an end to the Cold War with the old Soviet Union beginning in 1988. But then, under President George H.W. Bush, the American foreign policy community, led by the neoconservatives, adopted a doctrine of global dominance. 
This was, as Charles Krauthammer put it in Foreign Affairs in 1990, the U.S.'s unipolar moment, an opportunity to remake the world our way and keep it that way. They called it leadership, hegemony, preeminence, predominance, or even full-spectrum dominance. Dick Cheney's Defense Department's post-Iraq War I defense planning guidance from 1992 defined the doctrine for the new decade and into the new millennium. The U.S. must remain the single dominant power on the planet and must maintain enough military power to prevent any possible strategic rivals, such as Germany, Japan, Russia, or China, from even considering an attempt to challenge U.S. power. As those same neoconservatives wrote in their 1998 Project for a New American Century study, Rebuilding America's Defenses, expanding the U.S. presence in the Middle East and the NATO alliance in Europe was at the core of the doctrine. But there was a problem. On February 9, 1990, President George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of State James Baker III promised Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev that if the Soviet Union would withdraw their troops and allow German reunification under America's NATO military alliance, they would not expand it, as James Baker put it, one inch eastward beyond that. West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, French President Francois Mitterrand, and British Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and later John Major all made the same promise. Of course, they have lied about it since, at various times claiming this pledge either never happened or doesn't count because it wasn't in writing. But in 2019, the records were posted at George Washington University's National Security Archive. You can read the writing yourself. Just last month, at the end of February 2022, an American researcher found in the British National Archives a formerly secret document, minutes of a meeting with the political directors of the foreign ministries of America, the UK, France, and Germany on March 6, 1991, in which German representative Jürgen Krobog says, We made it clear in the 2 plus 4 negotiations that we would not expand NATO beyond the Elbe. We can therefore not offer NATO membership to Poland and the others. As reported by the German paper Der Spiegel, U.S. Representative Raymond Seitz said, We have made it clear to the Soviet Union, in 2 plus 4 talks and elsewhere, that we will not take advantage of the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Eastern Europe. End quote. Well, of course, we reneged on that promise almost immediately. Once the Soviet Union came apart and Russia was down on its knees, we start pushing NATO past the eastern border of Germany. Now, U.S. officials could lie to us about what was said. You know, we don't know any better. But, of course, the Russians do know better. They were in the room. They know what was said. They know that the U.S. and our allies know what was said. And so how are they supposed to interpret this? We know how they did interpret it. This is Vladimir Putin in a recent speech. Quote, What is unclear here? Are we putting missiles next to the United States borders? No. It is the United States that has come to us with their missiles. They are already on our doorstep. Not one inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. But of course they cheated. They just blatantly lied to us. Five waves of NATO expansion, and now, already, 
weapon systems are appearing in Romania and Poland, end quote. Now, you and I might disagree with his framing here, fine, but we're not responsible for Russia's national security. And so you ask yourself, why would we do this? Right? Many of America's most experienced and influential foreign policy dons ask the same question. This is from Scott Horton again. Quote, Many Cold War hawks, such as President Bush Sr.'s former National Security Advisor and close friend General Brent Scowcroft, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense William Perry, George Kennan, who had coined the containment policy back in the 1940s, and his rival Paul Nitza, who had favored the more aggressive policy of Soviet rollback, Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during most of the war in Vietnam, former CIA directors Admiral Stansfield Turner and Robert Gates, Ambassador to the USSR Jack Matlock, Cold Warrior Senators Daniel Patrick Moynihan, John Warner, Sam Nunn, and Bill Bradley, anti-communist academics Richard Pipes and Edward Lutwak, and dozens more of the highest-ranking active and retired generals, admirals, and foreign service officers all warned Clinton not to go through with it. In an open letter signed by President Eisenhower's granddaughter Susan and 50 of these important foreign policy establishment leaders, they warned in part, the current U.S.-led effort to expand NATO is a policy error of historic proportions. We believe that NATO expansion will decrease Allied security and unsettle European stability for the following reasons. In Russia, NATO expansion, which continues to be opposed across the entire political spectrum, will strengthen the non-democratic opposition, undercut those who favor reform and cooperation with the West, bring the Russians to question the entire post-Cold War settlement, and galvanize resistance in the Duma to the START II and III nuclear treaties. In Europe, NATO expansion will draw a new line of division between the ins and the outs, foster instability, and ultimately diminish the sense of security of those countries which are not included. In NATO, expansion, which the alliance has indicated is open-ended, will inevitably degrade NATO's ability to carry out its primary mission and will involve U.S. security guarantees to countries with serious border and national minority problems. And, un and unevenly developed systems of democratic government. Now I'm back to Scott. President Clinton had said that they would build and secure a new Europe, peaceful, democratic, and undivided at last. But he wasn't uniting Europe. He was redividing it. Ambassador Matlock, uh, this was the second to last U.S. ambassador to the USSR under Reagan, warned that if you exclude Russia from the expanded alliance, it would necessarily be perceived as being against them. Here, the Cold War had already been over for two years before the final end of the USSR, and the USA was already on the path to restarting it again. George Kennan wrote in the New York Times in 1997, Expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. 
Kennan complained to the Times' Thomas L. Friedman in 1998. I think NATO expansion is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. The expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn in their graves. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. Don't people, this is still Kennan, don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime, and now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. Of course there is going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that that's just how the Russians are. But this is just wrong. His prediction, our present. End quote. So again, that's George Kennan, you know, the, the, the famously soft on communism George Kennan, on the short list of the most distinguished American diplomats of the 20th century, who personally authored the basis of our Cold War strategy, basically saying, yeah, of course Russia is going to take NATO expansion as a threat, and of course it's going to increase tensions and provoke a bad reaction from them. He even got the next part right when he says that once Russia does react negatively and take steps to push back, people will point to those actions as post hoc justification for everything we did to contribute to the situation. One more passage from Scott. Um, he just did a great job of putting all this stuff together, uh, and I would have been using it anyway, so I might as well just give him credit for it and quote him. Uh, I hope everyone listens to his full talk, which I'll put in the show notes. Quote, President Joe Biden claims that Russia's recent actions have nothing to do with NATO expansion, that this is merely a thin excuse invoked by Vladimir Putin's government. Well, in 2016, Bill Clinton's former Secretary of Defense, William Perry, admitted to The Guardian that, in the last few years, most of the blame can be pointed at the actions that Putin has taken. And this is in 2016 again, so he's talking about what Russia was doing in Crimea and eastern Ukraine after the coup d'etat against Ukraine's elected government in 2014. But in the early years, I have to say that the United States deserves much of the blame. Our first action that really set us off in a bad direction was when NATO started to expand, bringing in eastern European nations, some of them bordering Russia. Now, Perry continues, and, and again, remember, this is the Secretary of Defense back in the 90s when NATO expansion was getting underway. This is not some pundit in the peanut gallery. Quote, At that time, we were working closely with Russia, and they were beginning to get used to the idea that NATO could be a friend rather than an enemy. But they were very uncomfortable about having NATO right up on their border, and they made a strong appeal for us not to go ahead with that. And now listen to this. Again, this is still Secretary of Defense William Perry. It wasn't that we listened to their arguments and said, well, we don't agree with that argument. Basically, the people I was arguing with when I tried to put the Russian point of view out there, the response that I got was really, who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power. 
And of course, that point of view got across to the Russians as well. That was when we started sliding down that path. Now back to Scott, quote, Secretary Perry almost resigned over NATO expansion back then. In the interview, he also blamed the U.S. for provocative missile defense systems in Europe and the color-coded revolutions in Russia's near abroad for poisoning relations with Putin's Russia. In fact, he said Putin was sure the U.S. was plotting to overthrow him too, something which Perry did not seem to think was too far-fetched himself. This is back to Perry. After he came to office, Putin came to believe that the United States had an active and robust program to overthrow his regime. And from that point on, a switch went on in Putin's mind that said, I can no longer work with the West. And back to Scott. As the great Ted Galen Carpenter of the Cato Institute and Antiwar.com pointed out last week, Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, conceded in her memoirs that Yeltsin and his countrymen were strongly opposed to NATO enlargement, seeing it as a strategy for exploiting their vulnerability and moving Europe's dividing line to the east, leaving them isolated. So then next, Scott talks about these diplomatic cables that were written by our ambassador to Russia in 2008, back to Washington. And the ambassador at the time was a guy named William Burns. And that name might sound a little bit familiar because William Burns is now Joe Biden's CIA director. And so anyway, in early 2008, Ambassador Burns meets with Putin, who tells him in plain language, quote, no Russian leader could stand idly by in the face of steps toward NATO membership for Ukraine. That would be a hostile act toward Russia. As part of the same series of meetings, which came just a few months before a big NATO conference in Bucharest, where the idea of bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO would be discussed, he also met with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. And Scott picks it up from here, quote, in January of that year, Burns met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and then wrote a memo for Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice back home entitled, Nyet means Nyet. Nyet means no in Russian. Julian Assange sacrificed his liberty to the darkest dungeons of the empire to bring us this information. In the memo, Burns, again, this is the current CIA director today, under Joe Biden, wrote, quote, during his annual review of Russia's foreign policy, January 22 and 23, Foreign Minister Lavrov stressed that Russia had to view continued eastward expansion of NATO, particularly to Ukraine and Georgia, as a potential military threat. While Russia might believe statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, when one looked at recent military activities in NATO countries— for example, establishment of U.S. forward operating locations, etc., they had to be evaluated not by our stated intentions, but by their potential. Lavrov stresses that maintaining Russia's sphere of influence in the neighborhood was anachronistic and acknowledged that the U.S. and Europe had legitimate interests in the region. But, he argued, while countries were free to make their own decisions about their security, and which political military structures to join, they needed to keep in mind the impact on their neighbors. 
Ukraine and Georgia's NATO aspirations not only touch a raw nerve in Russia, they engender serious concerns about the consequences for stability in the region. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or, at worst, civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. End quote. That is Joe Biden's CIA director, writing as the ambassador to Russia in January of 2008. And then what happened less than three months later? Three months after that cable reached Washington. In April 2008, after the NATO conference in Bucharest, the alliance released an official statement saying that Georgia and Ukraine will be put on a path to NATO membership. Now, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and Ukraine and Georgia, as far as I know, are not anywhere near the Atlantic. So why the move to bring those two in? You know, why not bring in Argentina or Ghana or Brazil? At least they're on the Atlantic Ocean, but nobody's talking about that. And the reason should be obvious, because the primary purpose of NATO is as a weapon against Russia. Robert Gates, the respected Secretary of Defense under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, wrote in his memoirs that trying to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO was truly overreaching. That was an especially monumental provocation. Now, you might ask yourself, if George Kennan and Bob Gates and Jack Matlock and Paul Nitza and William Perry and Bob McNamara and all of these major, major foreign policy establishment figures were so dead set against NATO expansion, who the hell was for it? And how did they win the debate? The journalist Richard Cummings explained in 1997 that it all started with a man named Bruce Jackson, who, quote, had launched the U.S. Committee on NATO Expansion, a non-governmental pressure group in 1996. The objective of the committee was to push for membership in the NATO military alliance for so former Soviet bloc countries, including Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. Well, who's Bruce Jackson? Good question. Cummings goes on, quote, as, as the New York Times put it in a 1997 article, At night, Bruce Jackson is president of the U.S. Committee to Expand NATO, giving intimate dinners for senators and foreign officials. By day, he is director of strategic planning for Lockheed Martin Corporation, the world's biggest weapons maker. That's how D.C. works. Many of the people making decisions have been in and out of the same set of revolving doors connecting government, conservative think tanks, lobbying firms, law firms, and the defense industry. So strong is the bond between lobbyists, defense contractors, and the Pentagon that it is known in Washington as the Iron Triangle. And this triangle inevitably gets what it wants. Why? Because in the revolving door system, 
A defense contractor executive can surface as an official in the Department of Defense, from which position he can give lucrative contracts to his former employer and his prospects for an even better paying job in the private sector brighten. Former aides to members of Congress become handsomely paid lobbyists for the companies they were able to help in their position on Capitol Hill. Such lobbyists can spread their corporate-funded largesse to the friendliest members and their aides on the Hill, and so on. End quote. Now see, the reason Lockheed Martin cares so much about more countries joining NATO is that any new member needs a whole new arsenal of new weapons that meet NATO specifications. The Cold War was over in the 1990s. Bill Clinton was cutting back the military in the U.S., and so they needed new markets to hawk their stuff. And all of the most respected Cold War foreign policy experts, all of them in the country, could not stand up to the money that the defense contractors were pumping into Washington, D.C. to get their way. Cummings goes on, quote, These blow-dried lobbyists, as one Washington district court judge calls them, wield far more power than most of the elected officials in town. Forget dime a dozen congressmen. It's these operatives who get the best tables at the Capitol Grill, where the power brokers lunch and sup. The lobbyists have their own lockers there, with personalized nameplates where they store their vintage wines, ports, and whiskeys. They dine on the fine-aged beef you can see through a window that allows guests to gaze into the refrigerated meat storage area. These people make up the K Street oligarchy that, despite all the vituperative rhetoric in recent years about campaign finance reform and insidious special interests, still run Washington. Bruce Jackson is a perfect example of this. While vice president for strategy and planning for Lockheed from 1999 to 2002, Jackson, by his own account, was also, quote, responsible for the foreign policy platform at the 2000 Republican National Convention, to which he was a delegate, end quote. Well, after Lockheed gets its way on NATO expansion and we're outfitting Poland with shiny new fighter planes and missile systems, Bruce Jackson moved on to another job at the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, and surprise, surprise, he got his way there too. That's American politics, folks. When people talk about NATO expansion as if it's bringing light to the darkened parts of the world or, or expanding the borders of freedom or, or as having something to do with grand strategy even, you just remember that all of the greatest and most respected strategists in the country vehemently opposed it. And they were overruled by politicians taking money from Lockheed, Raytheon, and all the rest. And so in 1999, we bring in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And Russia didn't put up much of a fight. You know, their economy was a shambles. Their president at the time was a doddering drunk that we helped install in power in 96 with the help of the oligarchs who pulled his strings. And in any case, as Secretary of Defense Perry said in one of the quotes above, Russia was starting to believe us when we said that NATO could be a potential friend rather than an enemy. In fact, did you know that the next year, after Vladimir Putin took power in 2000, he actually asked Bill Clinton if Russia could join NATO? Did you know he was the first world leader to call the White House after 9-11 to offer Russia's condolences and to offer us Russian airspace to fight our war on terror? He asked Bush about joining NATO too, but Russia was never going to get into NATO. 
Because if Russia was in NATO, people might start asking what the hell NATO was for. In 2004, we brought in seven more countries, including three that were right on Russia's border. And then we started installing weapon systems that were clearly arrayed against Russia in the territory of our new allies. We put strategic missile launchers in Romania and Poland, and when the Russians objected, we told them, oh, don't worry about it. They're only there to counter the Iranians. They really, Bush really said that. <laughs> well, the Russians had always expressed concern about NATO expansion, but by now they're getting pretty agitated about it. I already read you the quotes from our current CIA director, the ambassador to Russia at the time, where he warned people that the Russians were at the end of their rope and that NATO expansion, specifically into Ukraine and Georgia, was an absolute red line for them. And then, as I said, three months later, we announced we're putting Ukraine and Georgia on the fast track for NATO membership anyway. And we'd gotten used to the Russians crying about it, but never doing anything. Who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power. The president of Georgia at the time of that NATO Bucharest declaration was a, uh, well, there's no other way to put it. He was a straight-up State Department asset named Mikhail Saakashvili. And I mean that literally. He was educated in the United States on a State Department scholarship. And he came to power in Georgia in a U.S.-sponsored color revolution in 2003. He was our guy. And what happened in 2003 was that American NGOs, non-governmental organizations, helped prompt new elections in Georgia by helping to fund and organize protests against the incumbent government. And during the election campaign, we send our guy, Saakashvili, over with an army of campaign advisors and pollsters and public relations people and a, and a bunch of money to go over there and make sure that he wins the election. After he got run out of Georgia for corruption, surprise, a few years later, he turns up in Ukraine immediately after the 2014 coup, and we install him as the governor of Odessa. He's not even Ukrainian. The guy's an American asset, straight up. And after he had worn out his welcome in Georgia, we just put him to work somewhere else. Well, back in 2008, he's still president of Georgia. After NATO declares that Georgia will be fast-tracked for NATO membership, at George W. Bush's insistence, uh, by the way, over the objections of, of a bunch of European members of the alliance, Saakashvili hears that declaration and reads between the lines and thinks that he's getting marching orders. Because, see, one of the stipulations of the NATO treaty is that no new country can join if it's got disputed borders. You know, in other words, we can't bring a country already engaged in a conflict, even a dormant conflict, into a mutual defense treaty because that would commit us to war the moment the ink was put to paper. Well, ever since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, when all the countries were breaking away and declaring independence, Georgia declared its independence, but so did the Caucasus territory of uh, South Ossetia, which Georgia considered to be part of Georgia. Well, there was some fighting in the early 90s, between the South Ossetians and the Georgian government, but soon enough, the Russians and the Georgians come to an agreement. They both deploy peacekeepers to the region and agree to just preserve the status quo and keep things calm. Georgia never gave up its claim to South Ossetia, though, and so Saakashvili knew that he was going to have to clear up this territorial dispute before his country could join NATO. And so when NATO declared its intention to bring Georgia in while this dispute was still ongoing, Saakashvili took it as a message. 
And, and maybe it was more than an implied message, you know? Who knows what was being said to him behind the scenes. Took it as a message that he should take action and go retake South Ossetia. And so he unilaterally pulls out of the agreement that Georgia had made with the Russians, withdraws the Georgian peacekeepers, and attacks South Ossetia. The Russians, uh, well, they responded with extreme force, and Georgia got its ass handed to it. Um, I don't I don't know how many of you remember when this was going on. It was right after the Olympics in 2008. But it was really remarkable how similarly Saakashvili was being treated by the media and by U.S. politicians to how they're treating Ukraine's President Zelensky right now. I mean, very, very similar. You know, they, 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 were, they portrayed him as this plucky comic book hero leading his people against the evil empire. You know, they were, they were putting out pleas from him on like all the U.S. networks calling for U.S. Uh, involvement in the war. Just down the line, the same thing. It was very obvious at the time, and, and even more so in retrospect, that the United States did not expect the Russians to do anything about this because that's what we gotten used to. Again, the Russians might not like it, but they're not going to dare get in our way. Are you kidding? And the response of many U.S. leaders when they did get in our way was borderline freaking insane. You know, you had John McCain calling for Georgia to be brought into NATO immediately, even though it was illegal since Georgia was currently at war, and even though doing so would be the same thing as a declaration of war against Russia over a regional conflict that Georgia had unquestionably started. There were other senators calling for nuclear weapons to be deployed to Georgia. You know, Dick Cheney wanted to fire on and collapse the big tunnel where the Russian armor columns were coming through. And for what? How does adding Georgia to NATO increase NATO's capabilities or improve anybody's security? What was Georgia, and no offense to Georgians, man, but like realistically, what were they bringing to the table? It's this tiny, poor country in a volatile part of the world. What would we be getting out of it other than problems? I think the obvious answer is we would be getting a forward operating base for our long war against Russia. I mean, what else is it for? Uh, you know, like I said, defense contractors' profits are a big part of the calculation uh, because a new NATO country needs that whole new arsenal of NATO-compliant weaponry. But if it was just that, then they would bring in Argentina and Ghana and Brazil. I'm sure Lockheed would probably love that. NATO expansion has been used for one purpose, and one purpose only, and that is to hem in and to threaten Russia. That is just the fact of the matter. Well, our relations with the Russians have been on a downhill trajectory ever since 2008. And we were distracted by the war on terror for a while, but other than that, if you look at it, most of the aggressive actions we have taken around the world over the last 15 or 20 years have all been directed against Russia and her allies. I mentioned that we sponsored the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003 to install a State Department sock puppet as president. Just 10 months after that, we sent the same ambassador who oversaw the Georgian Revolution to be the ambassador to Russia's ally Belarus, and surprise, surprise, there's an attempted color revolution against that regime. In 2004, we sponsored the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and while that one was going on, the UK paper The Guardian did a piece on our role in, in, in the American role on, in what was unfolding, and they summarized some of it. Quote, 
funded and organized by the U.S. government, deploying U.S. consultancies, pollsters, diplomats, the two big American parties, and U.S. non-government organizations. The campaign was first used in Europe and Belgrade in 2000 to beat Slobodan Milosevic at the ballot box. Richard Miles, the U.S. ambassador in Belgrade, played a key role. And by last year, as U.S. ambassador in Tbilisi, he repeated the trick in Georgia, coaching Mikhail Saakashvili in how to bring down the incumbent president. Ten months after the success in Belgrade, the U.S. ambassador in Minsk, Michael Kozak, a veteran of similar operations in Central America, notably in Nicaragua, organized a near-identical campaign to try to defeat Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus. That one failed. There will be no Kostunika in Belarus, the Belarus president declared, referring to what happened in Belgrade. But experience gained in Serbia, Georgia, and Belarus has been invaluable in plotting to beat the regime of Leonid Kuchma in Kiev. He was the president in, in Ukraine at the time. The operation, Engineering Democracy Through the Ballot Box and Civil Disobedience, is now so slick that the methods have matured into a template for winning other people's elections. In the center of Belgrade, there is a dingy office staffed by computer literate youngsters who call themselves the Center for Nonviolent Resistance. If you want to know how to beat an entrenched incumbent regime, the young activists are for hire. Last year, before becoming president in Georgia, the U.S.-educated Mr. Saakashvili traveled from Tbilisi to Belgrade to be coached in the techniques of mass defiance. In Belarus, the U.S. Embassy organized the dispatch of young opposition leaders to the Baltic where they met up with Serbs traveling from Belgrade. In Serbia's case, given the hostile environment in Belgrade, the Americans organized the overthrow from neighboring Hungary, Budapest, and Szeged. The Democratic Party's National Democratic Institute, the Republican Party's International Republican Institute, the U.S. State Department and U.S. Aid are the main agencies involved in these campaigns, as well as the Freedom House NGO and billionaire George Soros' Open Society Institute. A whole bouquet industry of these NGOs has grown up since this was written in 2004. U.S. pollsters and professional consultants are hired to organize focus groups and use cephalogical data to plot strategy. The usually fractious oppositions must be united behind a single candidate if there is to be any chance of unseating the regime. Officially, the U.S. government spent $41 million organizing and funding the year-long operation to get rid of Milosevic from October 1999. In Ukraine, the figure is said to be around $14 million. And those might not sound like a lot of money compared to what we spend on election, like presidential elections in the United States, but these are tiny, poor countries. This is, they are, this is an ocean of money that we are pumping in there that nobody else can compete with. Apart from the student movement and the united opposition, the other key element in the democracy template is what is known as parallel vote tabulation. There are professional outside election monitors from bodies such as the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, but the Ukrainian poll, like its predecessors, also featured thousands of local election monitors trained and paid by Western groups. Freedom House and the Democratic Party's NDI helped fund and organize the largest civil regional election monitoring effort in Ukraine, involving more than 1,000 trained observers. They also organized exit polls. 
The exit polls are seen as critical because they seize the initiative in the propaganda battle with the regime, invariably appearing first, receiving wide media coverage, and putting the onus on the authorities to respond. The final stage in the U.S. template concerns how to react when the incumbent refuses to concede. In Belgrade, Tbilisi, and now Kiev, where the authorities initially tried to cling to power, the advice was to stay cool but determined and to organize mass displays of civil disobedience. If the events in Kiev vindicate the U.S. and its strategies for helping win other people's elections, it is certain to try to repeat the exercise elsewhere in the post-Soviet world, end quote. Again, that's in 2004, which was the first time we helped overthrow Ukraine's government. In that same year, we were busy spending at least $12 million to overthrow a Russia-friendly government in Kyrgyzstan, and in 2005, that country's leader had to flee to Russia. This is from a New York Times article, quote, It would have been absolutely impossible for this to have happened without that help, said Adil Baisalov, who leads a coalition of non-governmental organizations, referring to the uprising last week. Mr. Baisalov's organization is financed by the United States government through the National Democratic Institute. American money helps finance civil society centers around the country where activists and citizens can meet, receive training, read independent newspapers, and even watch CNN or surf the internet. The NDI alone, just one NGO, and we're talking about Kyrgyzstan, okay? just, it's not as if this, this country is at the center of our strategic focus. The NDI alone operates 20 centers that provide news summaries in Russian, Kyrgyz, and Uzbek. Talk shows like Our Times, produced in part with United States government grants, were broadcast over the country's few independent television stations, including Osh TV in the South, where the protest that led to Mr. Akayev's ouster began. Osh TV expanded its reach with equipment paid for by the State Department. The result is that the society became politicized, Mr. Kim said. The role of the NGOs was a crucial factor in the revolution. End quote. Now look, you can say that these governments that we're helping to overthrow are corrupt, but I don't really think that's the point. Now, our government's corrupt, and look how upset people got over Russia spending $100,000 on Facebook ads in 2016. In, in any case, it's not like we're replacing corrupt governments with uncorrupted ones. I already mentioned that Saakashvili, the president we helped bring to power in 2003 in Georgia, he was run out of office in 2012 after, this is from Foreign Policy Magazine, after, quote, its reformist credentials were undermined by a prison scandal that broke days before the elections. Prison guards were caught on tape sodomizing prisoners with broom handles, and knowledge of these practices allegedly went all the way to the top. For all of Georgia's pro-West rhetoric, the scandal showed just how incomplete the UNM's commitment to the rule of law has been. End quote. That is our guy. That is the country that John McCain wanted to bring into NATO to, you know, what's the line, uh, to expand the borders of freedom. The president that emerged after the Kyrgyzstan uprising, he ended up having to flee the country a few years later on corruption charges. The government that took power in Ukraine after the 2004 Orange Revolution was so corrupt that the country elected Viktor Yanukovych, the guy 
who had been the big villain of the Orange Revolution, back into office as prime minister in 2006 and then elected him president in 2010. And of course, he stayed in power until the next color revolution we sponsored in 2014, which was the proximate cause of the mess that we have right now. We took another shot at Belarus's leader Lukashenko in 2020, failed again. In late 2021, early 22, there was an uprising in Kazakhstan, which may or may not have had our fingerprints on it. But at this point, even if it didn't, how else are the people affected, including the Russians, supposed to interpret this after everything that's happened? I mean, we had Serbia in 2000, Georgia in 03, Ukraine in 04, Kyrgyzstan in 05, Belarus in 05, Ukraine again in 2014, Belarus again in 2020, maybe Kazakhstan in 2022. And this is all while we're hammering on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Iraq again, and a dozen other countries in smaller ways. I recently put together a Twitter thread summarizing this strategy white paper that was published by the RAND Corporation a couple years ago. Uh, RAND Corporation is one of America's most influential think tanks, has been going all the way back to the early Cold War. And it described a strategy that reads very much like the one we have been employing against Russia for the stated purpose of, quote, unbalancing and destabilizing Russia. And just keep in mind what happened to Russia the last time the country was unbalanced and destabilized in the 1990s. This paper says several times that Russia is paranoid about our intentions toward her and her allies and it advises U.S. policymakers to take advantage of that paranoia by placing offensive weapons in countries surrounding Russia specifically to increase Russia's security anxiety. Like, that's what it says. It calls for placing tactical nuclear weapons in countries all around Russia, says we ought to develop new long-range bombers and other strike capabilities to, quote, exploit Moscow's demonstrated fear of U.S. air power capabilities and doctrines, which will incentivize Moscow to devote ever greater resources to defend against these threats. I mean, just think about what they're saying here. Russia's already afraid of us, so we should be more aggressive and more threatening toward them because that'll freak them out even more, and then that'll force them to start an arms race that they can't possibly win. It even says we need to expand our nuclear missile submarine fleet specifically to force Russia to spend more to defend against possible nuclear attack. It says we should ring the Black Sea with land-based anti-ship missiles to threaten Russia's Black Sea fleet. It suggests withdrawing from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which Donald Trump did in 2019, and developing previously banned nuclear weapons for potential deployment to Europe. It says, it acknowledges that that would for sure provoke a Russian response, but it says that's actually a good thing too, because any Russian response is going to cost them money and resources that they don't really have. There's a ton more in the paper. There's a whole section on overthrowing the regimes of Russia's allies. It, it suggests using propaganda and psychological operations to delegitimize Russia's elections and damage the government's credibility. That might sound familiar. And then it says that we should do what we can to drag out the conflict in Ukraine as long as possible. And again, this was a few years ago, after the coup in 2014, but before the current acute war broke out. 
that we should drag out the conflict in Ukraine as long as possible by providing weapons and other aid, but that we have to do it in just a way that will gradually build up Ukraine's capabilities, but without actually giving Russia an excuse to intervene. So, oopsie. I guess we miscalculated that one a little bit. The paper is really worth reading in its entirety. I'll put it in the show notes. I mentioned a second ago that we were supporting these color revolutions while at the same time running military operations in places like Iraq, Syria, Libya, and other countries. Now, the Libya one's particularly interesting with regard to our relationship to Russia. Y'all remember Libya? Hillary Clinton, ha ha ha. We came, we saw, he died after she heard about Gaddafi being sodomized with a bayonet and brutally murdered by a horde of jihadists. Well, we actually got the Russians to go along with the Libya operation at the UN Security Council. But we did it by lying to them, just outright lying to them. We told Dmitry Medvedev, who was the president of Russia at the time, you know, Putin had stepped down to the lower position of prime minister. We told him that we only intended to establish a no-fly zone so that Gaddafi couldn't use his air force to attack population centers. Instead, as everybody knows, of course, we just destroyed Gaddafi's military as a whole and basically provided close air support for the horde of jihadists as they took down the Libyan government. We didn't stop there. We were bombarding cities that were loyal to Gaddafi, bombarding the capital. Right now, we're being bombarded with images of the destruction in Ukraine And this is being used as further evidence that Putin is a figure just this side of Hitler. Uh, You know, unless you ask Rachel Maddow or the Atlantic Council who say he's worse. But consider our humanitarian mission in Libya. I'm just getting these from Wikipedia. Quote, On May 13th, 11 religious imams were claimed to be killed and 50 others injured when a NATO airstrike struck a large gathering in Brega praying for peace in conflict-ridden Libya. On June 19th, At least nine civilians were killed in a NATO airstrike on Tripoli. Reporters saw bodies being pulled out of a destroyed building. NATO acknowledged being responsible for the civilians' deaths. On June 20th, the then Libyan government claimed that 15 civilians, including three children, had been killed by a NATO airstrike on Sorman. On July 25th, 11 civilians were killed by a NATO airstrike on a medical clinic in Zlitin. On July 30th, Three journalists were killed, and 15 other journalists were wounded in NATO attacks against the Libyan TV station Al Jamaria, which continued to broadcast after the attacks. On August 9th, the Libyan government claimed that 85 civilians were killed in NATO airstrikes on Majer, a village near Zlitin. A NATO spokesman confirmed that they bombed Zlitin on August 8th and 9th. The Libyan government declared three days of national mourning. Reporters were later taken to a hospital where they saw at least 30 dead bodies, including the bodies of at least two young children, end quote. Now, again, that's just a brief list that I cribbed from Wikipedia from just a few months in one country that we attacked. You could draw up much longer lists for Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia, many other countries. Now, again, I mentioned that the coalition attack on Libya came at a time when Putin had actually stepped down from the presidency and Dmitry Medvedev was in office. And people will say, sure, well, you know, Putin still had one hand on the wheel, though. And that's true. But 
it, it's not insignificant when the guy who is something like a dictator steps down and lets another guy step up. That's a big deal. You know, dictators keep power by making their reign look inevitable, identifying their own interests with those of the country so that you know, people imagine that if we don't have that guy, then we're going back to the chaos that we had before he got here. But stepping down and letting someone else step up, even if he's supposed to be a figurehead, it opens up the idea in the public mind and in in the minds of other elites as well, that there are actually alternatives to that one guy being in charge. But Medvedev was completely humiliated and totally discredited after being tricked by us in Libya. And so... That was the end of that experiment. Putin took back the presidency with broad public support. And it's very interesting when you look at U.S. foreign policy in places other than the Russian borderlands and, of course, the war on terror. You know, what, just what, what are the countries that the U.S. has tried to overthrow or destroy in the last decade or two? You know, Russia's ally, Venezuela. Russia's ally, Iran. Russia's ally, Syria. And is, is there a single government friendly to Russia, that we haven't tried to overthrow in recent years? I, mean, I guess China, but we'd probably love to do that too. Here's an article about the Russian reaction to the recent unrest in Kazakhstan. This is from just a couple months ago. Quote, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Monday he will no longer allow governments allied with Moscow to be toppled in so-called color revolutions, a reference to the series of popular uprisings that have shaken former Soviet republics. During an online meeting with leaders of a Russian-led collective security alliance, Putin blamed last week's violent unrest in Kazakhstan on destructive internal and external forces. He added, Of course, we understand the events in Kazakhstan are not the first and far from the last attempt to interfere in the internal affairs of our states from the outside. End quote. Now, this is from an analysis by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. It's a major U.S. foreign policy and defense think tank. This is from just a few months after the 2014 coup in Ukraine. Quote, The British strategist Liddell Hart stressed the need to understand rival views of grand strategy and military developments, or the other side of the hill. A range of Russian and Belarusian military and civil experts presented a very different view of global security and the forces behind it at the Russian Ministry of Defense's third Moscow Conference on International Security on May 23, 2014. An overview of the security situation, focusing on what Russia experts call the color revolution. Russia analysts have used this term since the Rose Revolution in Georgia and discussing the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004 and the Tulip Revolution that took place in Kyrgyzstan in 2005. Russian military officers now tied the term color revolution to the crisis in Ukraine and to what they saw as a new U.S. and European approach to warfare that focuses on creating destabilizing revolutions in other states as a means of serving their security interests at low cost and with minimal U.S. and European casualties. It was seen as posing a potential threat to Russia in the near abroad, to China and Asian states not aligned with the U.S., and as a means of destabilizing states in the Middle East, Africa, Central Asia, and South Asia. Many of the speakers at the meeting from other countries touched on very different themes. 
but the Russian and Belarusian military speakers provided a consistent and carefully orchestrated picture of the color revolution. Key Russian officers and officials presented a view of the U.S. and the West as deliberately destabilizing other nations for their own ends. They described such actions as having failed and as a key source of terrorism. They see the West as rejecting partnership and as threatening Russia along all of its borders with Europe. Senior Russian officials are also using the term color revolution in ways that are far more critical than in the past. For example, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has accused the United States and the European Union of an attempt to stage yet another color revolution in Ukraine, and said during the conference that attempts to impose homemade recipes for internal changes on other nations without taking into account their own traditions and national characteristics to engage in the export of democracy have a destructive impact on international relations. The end result is a radically different reading of modern history, of U.S. and European strategy, their use of force, and U.S. and European goals and actions from any issued in the West and in Russian prior literature. Western experts can argue the degree to which this represents Russian anger over the West's reaction to the events in Ukraine, Russian efforts at persuading developing nations and Asia to back Russia in a reassertion of its strategic role in the world, propaganda to cloak the character of Russian actions in Ukraine and the near abroad, an effort to justify Russian action in Syria, or a very real Russian concern over U.S. and European actions that have destabilized key Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asian states, along with a host of other possible motives and intentions. What is critical is that the U.S. and Europe listen to what Russian military leaders and strategists are saying. These are not Russian views the U.S. and Europe can afford to ignore. End quote. That's not from Russia today. It's not some lefty anti-war activist. That's from a generally hawkish major U.S. defense think tank. And I'll repeat the passage from Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William Perry, one more time. It wasn't that we listened to their arguments and said, well, we don't agree with that argument. Basically, the people I was arguing with when I tried to put the Russian point of view out there, the response that I got was really, who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power. And of course, that point of view got to the cross to the Russians as well, end quote. Okay, so I, I don't want to belabor the point about our meddling in Russia's near abroad any more than I already have. But there is one thing I want to address because I've been seeing it on social media lately. Um, I actually got into a brief back and forth on Twitter with Antonio Garcia Marquez, who I like in general, um, after he kept using words like supposedly and allegedly with regard to U.S. involvement in these color revolutions. He's not the only one. I don't want to pick on him. And the other people sometimes respond by posting pictures of the thousands and thousands of people out protesting during these revolutions. And they say something like, oh, okay, so I suppose all these people are out risking their lives uh, just because they're being paid by the CIA, huh? And I don't know if these arguments are, are just disingenuous or uninformed, but it's one of those two. Maybe both. You know, the fact is nobody, nobody with any idea of what they're talking about denies that the U.S. agencies and NGOs have been the driving force behind the color revolutions of the last 20 years. That is not something that is in dispute. The people in those countries don't deny it. 
and American officials never denied it because they were proud of it. And they promoted it as spreading democracy and, and, and promoting civil society, helping people reform corrupt governments. They blasted it out on government websites under their lists of accomplishments. I'll deal with the point about there being thousands and thousands of legitimate protesters first, since that one's quick and easy. Of course, most of the people participating in our color revolutions are not assets of the State Department. They're not being paid by the CIA. They're out there for their own reasons, because they, they live in poor countries with corrupt governments. But that's always been true whenever we've overthrown governments. Like in Iran in 1953 or in Central and South America. Every country has things that are worth protesting. And a corrupt oligarchy like Ukraine has more than most. There's no doubt about that. But did you know that at the time of the Maidan Revolution, while the protests were going on, more Ukrainians opposed it than supported it? You don't hear that very often today. Here's the Kiev Post from the time when the protests were ongoing. Quote, Poll. Half of Ukrainians don't support Kiev Euromaidan. Ukrainians are divided into two almost equal camps in their attitude to Kiev Euromaidan. 50% of Ukrainians don't support Euromaidan, while 45% have the opposite position, according to the December research conducted by Research and Branding Group. The Research and Branding Group conducted its survey of the public opinion of Ukrainians regarding its assessment of the current situation in Ukraine from December 23rd to December 27th. The information was collected through personal interviews in 24 regions of Ukraine, Crimea, Kiev, and Sevastopol. The possible margin for error is 2.2%, end quote. And so the idea that the revolution was just, it's just a grassroots movement that involved you know, all the people of Ukraine against the evil regime of Viktor Yanukovych, it's just not true. It's just not true. Half the country opposed the whole thing. Pedro Gonzalez did some yeoman's work recently on how this whole process worked in Ukraine. Did you know, for example, that Ukraine donated more money to the Clinton Foundation between 1999 and 2014 than any other country in the world? Did you know that Ukraine has spent more money lobbying Washington politicians in the last few years than any country ever has in a comparable period of time. That's from the journalist Ben Simmons, who's an expert specifically on foreign lobbying in Washington. Now look, I know it's legal to bribe our politicians like by hiring their children to no-show jobs for a million dollars a year or paying half a million dollars for their, for their kids' art or something. But Ukraine is a very poor country, and yet they're bribing with more money than any other country in the world. And it's not like that proves anything by itself, but that gravy train would be cut off if Putin got his way in Ukraine. And those same politicians receiving the bribes are telling us that we have to do absolutely everything to prevent that. Everything, even if it means the destruction of Ukraine's major cities and years of deadly insurgent warfare. You know, I'm just talking here, but... Is it just not relevant? Just not even worth bringing up the fact that the country we are supposed to be ready to sacrifice everything to defend just happens to be the same country that's been bribing our leaders more than any other country in recent years. This is from Pedro's recent article on Substack. It's a great article titled How the West Sowed the Seeds of War in Ukraine. Quote, 
By Obama's second term, the engines of regime change in Ukraine had already been set in motion at the State Department during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. Indeed, there were signs of trouble for Ukraine's President Yanukovych as soon as he was elected in 2010, when the managers of the U.S. government-funded National Endowment for Democracy took notice of him. According to U.S. international relations scholar John Mearsheimer, the NED helped pump more than $5 billion into Ukraine between 1991 and 2013 to promote civil society. But its real function is as a vehicle for regime change. Quote, A lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, explained NED co-founder Alan Weinstein. Mearsheimer noted that after Yanukovych won Ukraine's presidential election in 2010, the NED decided he was undermining its goals, and so it stepped up its efforts to support the opposition. Carl Gershman, who served as the NED's president from its founding in 1984 until 2021, called Ukraine the biggest prize in 2013, the year that the seeds of regime change sown by the West would begin to flower, end quote. Now, if I had more time, I would read the whole damn thing to you because there's a ton of important information that Pedro put in there. He also did a great article in uh, in Human Events recently, uh, but you know I got to get you guys out of here at some point. So I, I do encourage everybody to go read the full article on Pedro Gonzalez's Substack. It's called Contra. Um, I think most of it's behind a paywall, but if you got five bucks, just it's it's worth the read. It really is. It's very informative. You can just sign up and cancel after you're done reading it if you want. I don't care. But it's worth checking out. So let's talk about the revolution itself in 2014. Focus on Ukraine. Leading up to the Maidan revolution in late 2013, Viktor Yanukovych, the country's president at the time, had been in talks with the European Union about a bailout for Ukraine's struggling economy. The talks were at a standstill primarily for two reasons. The first is that the EU was demanding really extreme austerity measures in a country that was already very poor. And Yanukovych didn't really feel like he had the political room to accept those kind of measures. They're talking about big salary and pension cuts, huge hikes and utility rates, things like that. Other measures that that would hit the Ukrainian public directly and hard. Yanukovych just didn't feel like he had the political room to do that. The EU was also demanding special trade privileges. And this is what brings Russia into the discussion. See, Russia and Ukraine, going back a long time, have had special trade arrangements, something like we have with Canada and Mexico under NAFTA, or USMCA, rather. Pretty much open borders as far as trade between Russia and Ukraine for a whole range of goods and commodities. And so Russia's concern was that any privileged trade agreement between the EU and Ukraine would mean that products from the European Union would be able to go around the EU's trade agreements with Russia by using Ukraine as a backdoor to flood the Russian market. Very reasonable concern. This is something that we had going on in the United States for years until NAFTA was reformed into the USMCA. You know, China basically shut down our domestic steel production by flooding the U.S. market with cheap, subsidized Chinese steel, and they were selling it through Canada. They, they, they couldn't have done it directly. They were selling it through Canada to take advantage of the privileges that we had given our neighbor to the north. And so Putin tells Yanukovych, 
who up to this point, don't believe the hype about him being a Russian puppet. That is nonsense, and nobody thought that back in 2010, 2011, 2012, or 13. Nobody called him Putin's puppet until a few months before the coup happened. Okay, he was a he was a guy who did what most Ukrainian leaders had done, which is try to play both sides. You know, stay neutral, get what you can out of Russia, get what you can out of Europe and the United States, play it in the middle. Okay, that's how everybody perceived him, and that's why we were actually cool with him when he came to power in 2010. And so Putin tells Yanukovych, "Look, man, you can do what you want, but Russia's got to protect Russian markets. So if you make this deal with the EU," then our whole thing, our, our whole special trade arrangement, that's over with. Well, Ukraine's economy was very deeply tied into the Russian economy, much more than the EU. And so the effects of breaking that link would do more damage to the Ukrainian economy than any deal with the EU was going to repair, So, at least in the short and intermediate term. And so Yanukovych turns to Russia and accepts a bailout deal from them instead. And then just a, then now he's now he's Putin's you know he's a Putin puppet. And a few months later, the Maidan revolution breaks out with all the characteristics. I mean, right down the line, all the characteristics of every other color revolution we've run. As soon as the protests start in Kiev, U.S. officials start flying in, flying into Ukraine to encourage the people on the streets to keep pushing. You have Victoria Newland, who was. Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. She flies in to show her support and hand out cookies and donuts to the protesters. As soon as they get going, three brand new television stations pop up, funded and staffed by Western NGOs to manage the propaganda war. John McCain and other U.S. senators fly in to be pictured shaking hands with literal leaders of Ukraine's neo-Nazi and ultra-nationalist parties. And to let the protesters know that America's got their backs, while at the same time admitting that what they were trying to do would be devastating to Russia's position. McCain said, quote, There's no doubt that Ukraine is of vital importance to Putin. I think it was Henry Kissinger, I'm not sure, said that Russia, without Ukraine, it's an Eastern power. With Ukraine, it's a Western power. This is the beginning of Russia, right here in Kiev. End quote. It sounds like he agrees with Vladimir Putin there. Well, it was the middle of winter in Ukraine. This whole thing kicks off in November, December 2013. Dead of winter in Ukraine. Uh, it's not a, not, not a very comfortable environment. And so when the initial wave of protests didn't result in an immediate change of government, fewer and fewer people started to show up. And it looked for a minute like the protests might fizzle out. And so people came along and turned the thing into a full-fledged carnival putting on, I mean, big production concerts, providing free food and drinks, blankets, space heaters for months, anything they needed to keep people coming back. This went on for like four months. And who do you think was paying for that? I'll give you a hint. They speak English. In February 2014, protests been going on for a few months now. A phone call is leaked between Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and our ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt. And they are just straight up deciding who is going to be in which positions in Ukraine's new government. Which is very interesting since the phone call was leaked two weeks before the coup even happened. And so just think about what I just said. We literally got caught planning the coup. I mean, literally caught on tape deciding who gets to be in which positions in the new government. 
And we just went through with it anyway. And that might sound kind of crazy to do, but why not? You know, just pretend like it never happened and call anybody who brings it up a Putin apologist and people will rally to your side. Well, a few weeks later, extremist and neo-Nazi groups like Right Sector and Svoboda are arriving in force in Kiev with the intention of pushing the confrontation to a conclusion. It's been going on long enough. You've heard a lot about these groups in recent weeks. Many people have tried to downplay their significance in Ukraine. And, and, and of course, it's true that, that they, they only constitute a small overall portion of the population. But you have to ask what their role in these events and in the regime is. Because there's no question that they played the decisive role in sparking and then consummating the coup in 2014. Did they, were, were they the majority of protesters? No, of course not. But they're the ones who got the coup going and made that happen. Now, this was not even denied in mainstream Western sources until the Russians started making an issue out of it more recently. There's a half-hour documentary that the PBS series Frontline did back in 2014 called The Battle for Ukraine. And I highly recommend everybody watch it. It's pretty balanced. It's not real thorough. It's only a half hour, but it is on YouTube. Look up PBS Frontline, The Battle for Ukraine. It's good. The writer Lev Galinkin wrote this in The Nation magazine in 2016. Quote, Ukraine had an established far-right movement long before the Maidan upheavals of late 2013, early 2014. In 2010, Ukraine's then-president Viktor Yushchenko drew widespread condemnation abroad by honoring Stepan Bandera, a Nazi collaborator and leader of an underground army responsible for slaughtering hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles during World War II. Pre-Maidan Ukraine was home to the Social National Assembly, a white supremacist organization headed by Andriy Beletsky, who's written that his group's mission is to, quote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival. It also had the Svoboda Party, led by Ole Tianabak, a parliamentary deputy, that's what they call a member of parliament there, a parliamentary deputy whose 2004 request for an investigation of the Muscovite Jewish mafia controlling Kiev caused international headlines. That Tianabak is one of the guys John McCain and Senator Chris Murphy were pictured chumming it up with during their visit, by the way. In 2012, fellow Svoboda politician called Ukrainian-born actress Mila Kunis a dirty Jewess. All that these groups needed was an opportunity to come out of the shadows, and Maidan gave them that chance. Initially, the disparate neo-Nazi factions remained on Maidan's periphery. But as the protests grew violent in late 2013, which, is, which led to Yanukovych's overthrow, civil war, Crimea, etc. The far right played a crucial role, providing muscle to protesters who were largely unequipped to do their own fighting, as the New Yorker described it. Indeed, the instrumental role of far right groups was acknowledged by journalists and analysts in publications as diverse as The Guardian, the BBC, Reuters, and the National Interest. Even Hannah Thoburn, a commentator who's authored numerous articles in support of Maidan has pointed out the crucial role played by these groups, end quote. And now again, people will say, sure, there were extremists in the mix, but there are tens of thousands of people out there protesting. And I already mentioned the extravagant lengths we went to to keep 
those people around through the cold winter, but let's just take that point at face value. And the role of these extremist groups in these protests, it's similar to the role that like hardcore black bloc Antifa activists play when American protests turn into riots. There are thousands and thousands of people who are there to peacefully protest. And Antifa's job is to turn the peaceful protest into a riot. That's their job. That's why when Black Bloc shows up, the peaceful protest turns into a riot every time. We've seen the operation a hundred times. They show up on a block. They're the ones who throw the first bricks through the first windows. They're the first ones that go through the broken window and kind of lead the looting. And once the crowd starts following and it becomes you know, self-fulfilling thing and the police move in, they move on to the next block, they do the same thing, or they start fires, or they're the ones that provoke the cops into taking action that, of course, inevitably harms some of the peaceful protesters. I'm not speculating about this. I mean, these tactics are well-known. They've been written about by their own side. Well, in Ukraine, the extremists are not you know, drug-addicted children of wealthy parents putting on black masks and setting fires for the thrill of it. In Ukraine, you had the groups I mentioned a moment ago, like the infamous Right Sector, which is a political extremist organization as well as an organized crime syndicate. In 2015, a group of 20 or more Right Sector soldiers rolled into the western Ukrainian town of Mukachevo, where supposedly their illegal cigarette smuggling business was being infringed upon, and they just started shooting at civilians and local Ukrainian police. These guys were armed with rifles and grenade launchers. Their trucks had mounted machine guns on them. The leader of right sector, Dmitry Yarosh, served in parliament in Ukraine for five years after the coup in 2014. It was the presence of these groups that were ready to provoke and engage in very serious violence that really set the Ukrainian color revolution apart from the ones in the past. A few days after that phone call between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt choosing the post-coup Ukrainian government was leaked, an incident occurred that turned the protests into the coup d'etat that it became. On February 20th, 2014, again, this is about four months into the protests, protesters begin to march on the parliament. And these protesters are tooled up. They got shields. They got helmets. They're, they're coming to do battle. So the police set up barricades to prevent them from storming the building. The protesters set those barricades on fire, and they pelted the police with stones and bottles and Molotov cocktails. There's video of Ukrainian police officers like just on fire. Like I don't mean like your glove or your arm. Just you're on fire. Video like bunch of videos like that. And so the police respond with tear gas and rubber bullets. And then at some point, suddenly live rounds are being fired in all directions. And when the smoke clears, a lot of people are on the ground dead. Now immediately, without presenting any evidence for it to this day. Uh, the U.S. government and the Western press announced that the shooting had come from the Ukrainian police at the specific order of Viktor Yanukovych. I don't know how they knew that. And they even said likely with encouragement from Vladimir Putin. Again, I don't know how they would have known that. But from that very day, everybody involved in the pre-Maidan Ukrainian government, from Yanukovych on down to the police who were there on scene, 
have insisted that the shooting originated from windows of buildings that were controlled by the protesters and that the bullets were aimed at both the police and the protesters at the same time in order to create that conflict and get the shooting going and bring the protest to a head. If that sounds crazy to you, you know, first of all, that kind of thing has happened before in other countries. Uh, second of all, you got to know that these extremist groups are known for sure to have done similarly barbaric things many times. After the Maidan protest turned into a coup, some anti-Maidan protesters in the city of Odessa occupied that city's main government building, and a group of right-sector thugs went to Odessa and besieged the building, blocked the exit, set the place on fire, and burned 39 people to death. In the city of Mariupol in 2014, a bunch of right-sector guys, alongside soldiers under the command of the post-coup Ukrainian government, rolled into Mariupol with heavy weapons and armored vehicles to retake an occupied police station and just started shooting at anyone they saw. They massacred like 22 people. Now, this is who these people are. It is not beyond them. So kicking off a revolution, shoot, shooting you know, into the crowd and at police, it is not beyond them. And if you really want to dig into this, look up a paper written by a professor at the University of Ottawa named Ivan Kachanovsky. The paper is available online. It's called The Sniper's Massacre on the Maidan, and it is 79 pages long, and it presents a very thorough forensic investigation that I can't summarize here. But this passage from the abstract will give you some idea. Quote, The paper analyzes a large amount of evidence from different publicly available sources concerning this massacre. Qualitative content analysis includes the following data. About 1,500 videos and recordings... There were surveillance cameras everywhere, and there were people with you know cell phones and video recorders and everything all over the place. So there's tons of material from right there where the shootings were going on. Qualitative content analysis includes the following data. About 1,500 videos and recordings of live internet and TV broadcasts in mass media and social media in different countries, some 150 gigabytes. News reports and social media posts by more than 100 journalists covering the massacre from Kiev some 5,000 photos and nearly 30 gigabytes of publicly available radio intercepts of snipers and commanders from the Special Alpha Unit of the Security Service of Ukraine and internal troops, and Maidan massacre trial recordings. This study also employs field research on the site of the massacre, eyewitness reports by both Maidan protesters and government special units and commanders, statements by both former and current government officials, Estimates of approximate ballistic trajectories, bullets and weapons used, and types of wounds among both protesters and the police. This study establishes a precise timeline for various events of the massacre, the locations of both the shooters and the government snipers, and the specific timeline. End quote. And so after meticulously reconstructing the crime scene using the mountains of surveillance footage and cell phone video pictures, interviews, etc., it says, quote, This academic investigation concludes that the massacre was a false flag operation, which was rationally planned and carried out with a goal of the overthrow of the government and seizure of power. It found various evidence of the involvement of an alliance of the far-right organizations, specifically the right sector and Svoboda, and oligarchic parties such as Fatherland. Concealed shooters and spotters were located in at least 20 Maidan-controlled buildings or areas, 
The various evidence that the protesters were killed from these locations includes some 70 testimonies, primarily by Maidan protesters, several videos of snipers targeting protesters from these buildings, comparisons of positions of the specific protesters at the time of their killing and their entry wounds, and bullet impact signs. The study uncovered various videos and photos of armed Maidan snipers and spotters in many of these buildings. The paper presents implications of these findings for understanding the nature of the change of the government in Ukraine, the civil war in Donbass, Russian military intervention in Crimea and Donbass, and an international conflict between the West and Russia over Ukraine, end quote. Now, does that mean that that's what happened? No. But the people saying that it was a massacre carried out by Ukrainian police at the order of Yanukovych haven't presented any evidence for their position, so it's as good a theory as anything else we got. The hardcore groups like Right Sector certainly had the capability and they had the motive. And in my opinion, it's very questionable whether Yanukovych, who was perfectly well aware of how these color revolutions depended on provoking the authorities into violent action, had any motive at all to order people to just randomly fire on the crowd. The pro-Maidan militants, as things really got underway, sent an armed squad to Viktor Yanukovych's residence, and they got there just after he had already fled the country by helicopter. And when they arrived, they saw his caravan of vehicles, like his presidential convoy, leaving as a decoy, and according to reports, they start shooting at them. So probably they were there to kill Viktor Yanukovych before he escaped to Russia. So the country's in chaos. You got these hardcore extremist groups going around now intimidating and attacking and just disappearing people who oppose the coup. A bunch of them have been implicated by outside groups, human rights organizations for torture and murder. The first act of the new government, the first thing they did was to ban Russian as Ukraine's second official language. And so then the people of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, which are mostly, mostly ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, said, to hell with this, we're out of here, and they declared their independence. And the newly constituted Ukrainian government declared war on those regions that refused to go along with the coup. They bombarded and assaulted the Donbass from 2014 right on up until the recent Russian invasion, killed some 14,000 people, thousands of civilians. Some 1.5 to 2 million refugees fled the region into Russia and Belarus. You keep hearing about all the refugees fleeing Ukraine into Poland and, and other Eastern European countries now from the Russian assault. And that's very real. That's definitely true. But over the last eight years, you've had like maybe 2 million refugees who have had to flee the Ukrainian government's attack on the Donbass. And so people talk as if Ukraine suddenly found itself in a war in the year 2022, but the Ukrainian military has been attacking the ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine for eight years. Russia started sending materiel and some special forces advisors to help out the rebels there. But Vladimir Putin watched for eight years, watched 14,000 people get killed before he ordered the Russian military to intervene directly. And I'm sorry if that sounds like I'm defending Vladimir Putin, but that is just what happened. Not long after the new government was set up, three Ukrainian members of parliament stated publicly 
that now is the time to throw the Russians out of their Navy base in Crimea, their most important Navy base, one of their most important military bases, period, to throw them out of their Navy base in Crimea. The Russians had agreed to just abide by the status quo of Crimea, even though the people there thought they were Russian and everybody kind of thought it was part of Russia, but they were like, okay, Ukraine can have it as long as you let us pay you to keep our naval base. And so they gave them a 99-year lease, and Russia was up to date on their payments. But now you've got Ukrainian parliamentary members saying, let's throw the Russians out. And so at that point, Vladimir Putin tells the military personnel who were already there in Crimea at the Sevastopol naval base, you hear like that the Russians invaded Crimea. They, they really didn't. Those, those troops were already in Crimea at the base. He ordered them to go out and secure the Crimean Peninsula, and they did. Few people died, but it, I think I think six people died. But uh, it's never even been confirmed that they were killed by by Russian forces. The Crimeans had always identified as Russian. I mean, Crimea was a part of Russia until Khrushchev transferred its administration to Ukraine in 1954 as part of an internal Communist Party power struggle. And so a referendum was held, and ninety some percent of the people voted to join the Russian Federation a vote that even the people who hate Russia don't doubt was more or less accurate. The people of the Donbass then held similar votes not long after with similar results, but Vladimir Putin said no. He, he declined to annex that territory. So now if you're American, I'll try to put this in more familiar terms. Just imagine that the January 6th protesters, you know, if, if, if you're a liberal or just make it Antifa if you're on the other side, whatever. I'll go with the January 6th protesters. If instead of running into the Capitol, they decided to camp out and turn it into a long-term event like Occupy Wall Street. Goes on for a while, and as it's going on, money starts flowing in from the Russian government and groups connected to it to put on concerts and provide people there with food and drinks and blankets and whatever else they need to keep the thing going. And then high officials from the Russian government, very high officials, think like equivalent to John McCain, start showing up and giving speeches to the protesters, encouraging them to keep up the fight against the corrupt American government and taking pictures with people literally wearing Nazi insignia in the photographs. And then those protesters do try to storm the Capitol and the police set up barricades, but the protesters set the barricades on fire. They start throwing bottles and rocks and Molotov cocktails that set policemen on fire. Now, buildings all around the capital have been occupied and placed under the control of the protesters, and snipers can be seen in the windows of those buildings. Then violence breaks out, and they successfully overthrow the government of the United States, and they're in power now. So then protests against the coup break out in liberal cities all over the country. And the new government sends heavily armed gangs of neo-Nazis alongside government forces to go put down the protests. And in several cases, they just massacre people. Then the first action taken by the new government is to ban the Spanish language. Literally, the, again, the first legislative action taken by the post-Maidan Ukrainian government was to ban Russian as one of the country's official languages. So in this example, let's say that the new coup government bans Spanish. And so following that, the heavily Hispanic regions of the Southwest say, you know, screw this noise. Uh, we're under no obligation to be governed by these people who just 
seize power by force and are taking measures that are clearly directed against us. And so they declare themselves the Free Latino Republic. And then the government starts sending real military forces to attack them with heavy weapons and training and intelligence provided by Russia. And so the Mexican government sees this and they say, well, we got to do something. And so they start providing aid and advisement to the Free Latino Republic. And Russia reacts by coordinating global sanctions against Mexico. And throwing the fact that everybody knows, everybody around the world knows that Russia's already pulled off similar operations in a half dozen of Mexico's allies in just a few preceding years. And then finally, after eight years of attacks by this new American government against the Free Latino Republic, in which some 14,000 people were killed in the breakaway regions, again, including thousands of civilians, millions of refugees are forced to flee the region into Mexico. After eight years of that, finally the Mexican government decides it has to intervene directly, and it launches a military attack against the American government that seized power in the coup. Now that is a close approximation to what has happened in Ukraine since 2014. And that, that story doesn't mean you have to think that Mexico would have been justified in launching its attack or that Russia was justified in launching their attack. But it definitely turns it into something other than the black and white, good versus evil story being shoveled down our throats by Western politicians in the corporate press. And this podcast isn't intended to convince you that Putin is some kind of great guy. He's, he's a ruthless dude. You know, nobody but a ruthless dude could have seized control of Russia almost single-handedly, given the state that it was in when he took power. You know, the, the, the country was run by oligarchs who had private military forces better equipped than the Russian army, and he managed to take control of it without having a civil war. That's the kind of guy that can inspire fear in people. He's a ruthless dude. And this doesn't detract from what the Ukrainian people are going through right now or what they've been going through doesn't detract from their hopes or aspirations. But I'll say what I said at the beginning. I am an American. My concern is with what my country does and has been doing. And if a real war were to break out, and of course the Ukrainians are already in a real war, but if a great power war were to break out, and I asked myself, if we had done everything on our end to avoid the conflict, I have to say that the obvious answer is no. That in fact, we have been doing everything possible to provoke, prolong, and inflame the situation. And to be honest, I don't know how anybody could deny that in good faith. Now that the war is on, I got to say it's really striking how excited so many American leaders are about it. They're just, they're, they're just so corrupt and disgusting. They're just giddy about it. And I guess I could go on forever here, but I'll leave it there. All I hope is that this war ends as soon as possible, by almost any means possible, and that we, as Americans, can take an honest look at what our own corrupt ruling class has done to help bring things to this point. Thank you for listening. 
Oh. 